I'll be reading from Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Therefore, leaving the elementary teachings about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God, of instruction about washings and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we shall do if God permits. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put, to open sh put him to open shame. For ground that drinks the rain which often falls upon it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled, receive a blessing from God. But, but if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. May God bless the reading of his word. That um, somber word from Hebrews 6 fits hand in glove with a warning Jesus expresses toward the end of Matthew 12. And so I invite you to turn with me, if you haven't already, turn in your Bibles to Matthew 12. We're nearing the end of this chapter, and we see that Jesus gives us a parable about the peril awaiting those who engage in religion, even religion about him, moral reform, without surrendering their hearts to him. And if you're pressed for time, I'm going to tell you where this sermon ends right now. Those who embrace religion, even religion about Jesus, and moral reform without surrendering to Jesus, are in eternal peril. We might think of an adult child who once seemed spiritually engaged and, and, and went to church and, and, and knew the gospel language and, and sang the gospel songs and uh, but is now as, as alienated from God as ever uh, with a life to prove it. And we wonder, what happened? How, how is this possible? We might have in mind a young couple who attended our small group, raised their kids alongside our kids, maybe for a number of years, and now they're not only far from each other, this couple. They are, both of them, far from God. Heaven knows what happened to the kids. And, and, and we wonder, what happened? How, how is this possible? But, you know, this morning we don't want to focus too much on who we might have in mind. 
God comes to us in his word today with us in mind, you and me. Each one of us, that we might consider ourselves and, and, and with God's help, ask ourselves, are, are, are we one who is, who is well cleaned up with religion about Jesus and yet inwardly unsurrendered to Jesus? Clean yet unconverted. Well, let's just get right to it. Matthew 12, verse 43. These are the words of our Savior and our King. Now, when an unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it unoccupied. Note that swept and put in order. Then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself. And they go in and live there. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. This is the way it will also be with this evil generation. What in the world is happening here? Well, in the past several weeks, months, I suppose... We've been blessed to consider various responses to Jesus. We've seen them in Matthew's gospel. Jesus is God, the eternal son, uh, born into humanity. He is the um, long-awaited, promised from the beginning of history, king uh, of God's people. And Jesus, says Matthew, has been demonstrating his supreme authority to save his people from their sins, that that he truly is heaven's king. Um, Matthew has shown us Jesus defeating the works of the devil by uh, casting out demons, by um, healing diseases, even bringing the dead to life. Jesus has done what only God can do. Matthew has shown us this. He's commanded creation. He's, he's, he's calmed the, the storms at sea. He's, he's stilled the, the winds. He's even declared for some the forgiveness of their sins. Only God does that stuff. Who is Jesus? Jesus is God. And as God promised, Jesus' arrival had been preceded by a forerunner. That the last of the Old Testament prophets, John the Baptist, who had called God's people to repentance and anticipation of their coming king, Jesus. And here's the thing. An awful lot of people responded. Lots of people responded. They responded in droves to John's call to repentance. Matthew 3 told us, then Jerusalem was going out to him, to John, and all Judea and all the district around the Jordan, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. And you, and, and, and you got to think, well, what an amazing response. And then the Savior himself came 
Matthew 4 told us that large crowds followed Jesus from Galilee and the Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. What, what an amazing response this is to the ministry of the kingdom of heaven breaking into humanity in the person of Jesus Christ. And yet we realize that by the time we get to Matthew 12, we know that in response to Jesus' difficult teaching, um, the, the demands of discipleship that he put forward to God's people, the, the crowds following him began to thin. And specifically, the people's religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, are now plotting to kill Jesus. Are you with me on this? This is all review. It does not count against my time. And you, and you have to wonder, how can religious people who seem to look forward to the kingdom of heaven now be conspiring to kill heaven's king? How, how is this possible? And the answer, says Jesus, is to do with the human heart. That, that is described in this short story, this, this parable of the empty house. Look at verse 43. Now when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and does not find it. Um, if you took the uh, um, suggestion uh, this past week and reread that part of Matthew 12, verses 22 through 29, uh, that gave us the account of Jesus casting out a demon from a man uh, who, who had been blind and, and mute. Um, you, you have a context for this. That man, you re did anybody do that? It's always good to do that. It might come up. That man had been liberated and healed by Jesus. He, he's enabled to see the glory of God around him. He's, he's able to speak things that glorify God to those around him because he had become a living illustration of the power of Jesus Christ to save his people. But here in verse 43, Jesus speaks of an unclean spirit, a demon, that simply goes out of a man this man is not liberated he, he, so much as he, he's vacated, if you will. It is not explained how the demon goes out. The demon just left. And, and, and the demon and its evil influences left for whatever reason, took a vacation, if you will, from its work of harassing the soul of this man. And, and what has he done? Well, he's done some things that others would applaud. Turns out demons, fallen angels move about. And, and it is kind of mysterious. Jesus in this parable says this demon left to, went through waterless places. What, what in the world is that about? I don't know. That's the quick answer. Uh, but, but it seems to be that this demon, I mean, water, something that's waterless is desolate, right? Uh, this demon finds no rest, finds no satisfaction when it is away from its depraved labors, again, harassing this man. 
This is not a lesson in demonology, so don't get hung up on that. Um, we're, we're meant to focus on the soul, the heart of this individual, this person once inhabited by a demon. This is a picture of a life that is prettied up, that, that is made outwardly clean via self-effort, self-energized religion. And however impressive it looks, says Jesus, it's empty. Verse 44, then the demon says, I will return to my house from which I came, and when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept, and put in order. How interesting that in Jesus' parable, the demon uses the term my house, okay? So obviously this man has not been liberated by the power of God the Son. How many of you know when Jesus saves, he saves completely? There's no tweeners. So this is a different kind of experience. It's just that this person in, in a season, absent demonic influence, has done a fine job cleaning himself up. A noticeable moral improvement has occurred. People notice it. The house is swept and put in order, but the problem is what? The house is unoccupied. It's an empty house, and this demon still has the key. You still with me? What a description this is of unbelieving Israel in Jesus' day. Israel's entire history, you see this all over the Old Testament, is, is this endless cycle of, of cleaning house and yet falling short of true allegiance to God. And yes, there is a faithful remnant, don't misunderstand me, but nonetheless, the big picture was one of apostasy. And in Jesus' day, what is happening? The scribes and the Pharisees had actually brought about uh, some measure of outward moral reform. The, the nation looks religious, looks devout. On the surface, things looked much better, even impressive. Outright idolatry was no longer prevalent in Israel. Uh, now the people seemed more devout, more religious than ever. In fact, they lived under the Pharisaical bondage of, of, of adhering to the Mosaic law on steroids, right? Legalism was the issue. So that many lives were all bound up and chained to endless rule-keeping and, and religious scruples and all of that stuff as a means of, of showing themselves to be devout. The way people today busy themselves simply to show themselves devout. Many even got baptized under John's ministry. So the nation Israel is like this house. It's all cleaned up, yet unoccupied. The king has come, but, but he's not enthroned in the hearts of his people. A decade ago, the city of Detroit went bankrupt 
remember reading about this? It was the, it was the largest municipal bankruptcy in U.S. history. This is why I was really pulling for Detroit in the in the the thing that just happened. But um, <laughs> but but I remember reading these sad stories about many many nice tidy houses that were simply abandoned. I mean, the banks didn't want them. They they looked great entire neighborhoods ready to move in. It's just that they, they were unoccupied. And, and, and what happened? Urban decay is probably not a strong enough term. All manner of deadbeats and ne'er-do-wells, criminals of all stripes moved in and settled into these neighborhoods. And, and, and the scale of, of blight and destruction was worse than whatever you would have pictured about urban Detroit. I'll just leave it at that. And you've heard the expression, right? Nature abhors a vacuum. What's that about? Something is always going to fill the emptiness. A soul's emptiness. A person whose soul is spiritually idle may look really clean and even religious on the outside. But notice in verse 45, the danger to the house, the, the, the danger to the soul that is pretty clean and yet pretty empty. Then the demon goes and takes along with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself. And they go in and live there, and the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. That is the way it will also be with this evil generation. That's how unbelieving Israel went so quickly from what seemed to be enthusiasm for the coming of the Messiah to cries of crucify him, crucify him. Didn't take that long. And this is the fourth time just in Matthew 12 that Jesus has referred to this generation. And why do I mention that? Uh, remember, this generation, this evil or wicked generation, refers first and foremost to the generation of Jesus' first listeners, first century Israel. They would live to see some of the things he prophesied happening to Israel in her apostasy when, when, when we get to Matthew 23 and we will do so. Don't despair. When we, when we get to Matthew 23, we'll, we'll hear Jesus lamenting over Jerusalem, you know, behold, your house is being left to you desolate. This is the generation Jesus is, is primarily speaking to. It did not help first century Israel, in other words, to get all cleaned up and all religious, uh, moral reform coming out their ears because the hearts of her people were empty, not ruled by their king even as he lived among them. They were clean yet unconverted, which meant their evil against him and his disciples in intensified until they gladly cried out for his crucifixion. And from the, from the bleachers of history, you're still listening. You guys are, are you? All right. 
Don't think I wasn't noticing. (laughs) From the bleachers of history, we know what happened to that generation. Uh, Just a few decades after Christ's death and and resurrection and ascension to heaven, the Roman army sacked Jerusalem. Um, Hundreds of thousands of Jews, maybe a million Jews, according to Josephus, uh, were were killed. Um, The tangible trappings of the old covenant system were gone. The blood sacrifices are gone because the temple's gone. The temple's destroyed. But in that tragedy... Our redemption is made possible. National Israel's apostasy was for the rest of the world's salvation because the ultimate sacrifice, Christ at Calvary, the cross, the empty tomb, fulfilled the promise that was anticipated in in all of those earlier sacrifices. But what a somber warning this is um, to remember what happened to apostate Israel because it applies to all who are on the road to apostasy today. You see, that, that's the thing. Um, because you might be thinking, I can see it on some of your faces. Well, you know, 70 A.D., that was when Rome did its thing to um, Jerusalem it's the year 2024. And, and some of you, like me, thought we'd be living on the moon by now, but we're not. But, but that's a long, I mean, 2024 minus 70, that's, I mean, that's math for sure. But, it, but it's a long time. It's a long time in the past. And, and, and you're thinking, well, what, um, what in the world does this have to do with me today? Surely I have not come here for a history lesson. Well, surely you know that we have had members in our church, people who claim to believe what we believe, people who worshiped with us and, 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 and received love from us and, and loved us in return. Um, but right now, they are not among us. They, they are not at another church. They are out wallowing in the mire of self and worldliness and indulging the spirit of loving the things of this world, and, and, and we wonder sometimes, well, what, what happened? How is this possible? Are you hearing this? But again, we, we don't want to come to the application of Scripture and think primarily of those guys. This is to do with us guys, the, the, the people here. It may just be that this passage has everything to do with you sitting in a church as you are. Do you see in this little parable of the empty house the danger of getting all cleaned up morally with religion, even religion about Jesus, while harboring a heart unyielded to Christ? Is your house clean Tidy in that sense, yet unoccupied by the king. How many good religious people 
attend America's churches, I wonder, sitting in the seats and singing the songs and, and, and seeming to embrace Christ outwardly. Yet the house, the, the hidden rooms of the soul remain empty, uninhabited by Christ, void of true love toward Christ, and therefore easy prey for an inevitable decline. You care if this is practical for a minute? That is why... Um, Efforts like the so-called moral majority movement in my parents' generation, my childhood uh, growing up years, ultimately fail. Why? Because a community ends up worse than before when you just play at morality or when you politicize Christianity. Legislating morality alone produces a Christless Christianity. God has not asked us to redecorate the Titanic. You cannot enter the kingdom of heaven by self-effort, religious reform. The ship's going down. And to be saved, you must have Jesus. Outward reformation without regeneration ultimately leads to greater sin and hell. This is not my material. This is the Word of God. Warren Wiersbe, in his commentary, puts it this way. He says, it's not enough to clean house. We must also invite in the right tenant. Probably should have started with that, huh? Parents, listen. It is good and right and essential that we instruct our children energetically to not do certain things and to be sure to do other things, good things. But we want to be careful to always point our children to Christ first and foremost. Jesus loves me. This I know. Jesus' love for us and his saving work, that the repentance and allegiance to Christ that is the result of, of his saving work. Um, oh, how I love Jesus. And I want to live that way because he first loved me. We don't want to just teach or model mere moralism. Um, Do-goodism. Or, or don't do badism, if you prefer or, or, or worse yet, don't let others see you do that ism, you know. And for heaven's sake, let's not model the Christless conservatism that is so common in our safe little part of the world. We preach Christ. We preach Christ as Savior and King. Amen? We preach and teach and pray toward every sinner's greatest need, which is what? Regeneration by the Spirit of God, evidenced by repentance and allegiance to Christ as King. Well, we're, we're going in a direction now, aren't we? I wonder, is heaven's King 
at home in your heart? Or have you just emptied your house of that which is outwardly dirty? I mean, the porn is gone, mostly. The tax cheating is gone. Church attendance is better. You found that old Bible. You bring it with you to small group. But it's not satisfying because there remains within you an emptiness. Is that you? Let me encourage you today. It doesn't have to stay that way. Blaise Pascal was a French guy, a mathematician, um, a Christian, an evangelist eventually in the 17th century. And it's Pascal who's credited with helping people understand the whole concept of a vacuum. Um, so, so we now have pistons and uh, hypodermic needles and stuff like that. But Pascal is the guy who often gets credit for saying there is within each one of us a God-shaped vacuum that only God can fill. Now, that's, that's nice, and it fits on a poster because I've seen it. But that's not quite what he said. Um, his actual comment about, was about the things that people tend to try to do in their own strength to fill that vacuum that is the human heart. And he said, these things are all inadequate because the infinite abyss can only be filled by an infinite and immutable object that is to say only by God himself. And the thing of it is, is, is Pascal knew what he was talking about because he was a guy who had gone through the motions of, of religious experience um, in his own strength. He got himself cleaned up. He became an ascetic. He was just shunning all um, outwardly worldly things. Um, cleaned up, yet unconverted. And it was later in life that, that Pascal was, was truly converted, and, and, and it, it wasn't too late for him. And friend, let me just say, it is not too late for you. If you've come here this day, clean, yet unconverted. Is there a vacuum in your heart not yet filled so that even you abhor it now? It's unsatisfying. What a mercy this is from God that, that you would have a sense of that even. Maybe you've gone through great effort to clean house superficially. Will you accept the king's invitation to cease from those labors, your exhausting self-improvement efforts, and simply rest in full surrender to Him. You, you, you run to our Jesus like a little girl falls into the arms of a, of a loving father. She's all in. Jesus has already lived the perfect moral life you've been playing at. And the scandal of his gospel is that he'll credit his real righteousness to you who trust in him. 
come to Christ. His bloody death at Calvary is the only death sufficient to wash away the record of all of your sins against God. You're playing at church, and religion will not do that. Come to Christ. Come to Christ. Well, some of you are looking at me like, um, what about those of us who are, in fact, believers? How about that? Is there a message, is there encouragement for us, the converted, in the warnings of Jesus for those who are cleaned up yet unconverted? The answer, of course, is yes. Any of the scriptures that warn the, the, those on the road to apostasy are a great help to those of us who are truly converted. What do I mean by that? God's warnings to us in Scripture to persevere in our faith uh, are placed side by side His promises, His assurances that He preserves us in our faith. In other words, it's a work of God, this preserving work, but we've got skin in the game. We're, we're not passive in this. Thomas Chalmers one of these old dead guys, a Scottish Presbyterian preacher in the 1800s, um, puts it this way. He wrote an essay called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And I think just the title of that kind of says it. But anyway, Chalmers is the guy who said this. He says, we know of no other way by which to keep the love of the world out of our heart than to keep in our hearts the love of God. And no other, but no other way by which to keep our hearts in the love of God than building ourselves up on our most holy faith. And in other words, when we're saved, there are new loves that are, are, are present organically. It's, it's a work of God um, that from the inside out, replacing those old loves so that, so that a vacuum, an empty house, um, doesn't occur in the first place. Out with the old, but then in with the new. In fact, the, the, the change from, from self and sin to, to Christ and, and Christ-likeness is not unlike new growth on a tree, you know, pushing off the, 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 the dead leaves. A work of God, for sure, and yet a work that the believer cooperates with, embraces is active in. Are you with me on this? This was the Apostle Paul's prayer for the Ephesian believers. He said, Then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him. Your roots will grow down into God's love and keep you strong. In other words, repentance and faith in Christ is the victory that overcomes this spiritual emptiness. It's not enough to just get yourself cleaned up outwardly. It's not enough for you just to kind of hang out with the Jesus people and adopt some of the stuff that the Jesus people have adopted and call it good. If your house is empty today, turn to Christ. Surrender to Christ. The Bible calls that repentance. Repentance. You turn from sin, you turn to Jesus. 
Don't leave the house empty, unoccupied. And those of us who are in Christ benefit from this because we're reminded that this saving faith that is, that is absolutely a work of God, um, though it is a gift from God, is, is like a muscle that, that is in need of nourishment and is in need of, of being exercised. Again, we have skin in the game. Real faith lives. It moves. It's active. I read somewhere that faith without works is dead. When Christ makes his home in your heart, new affections are evident. Amen? And, and so what do you do? You, you nourish those new affections. You, you enjoy and, and walk in the direction of those, those new affections. And, and yes, the Holy Spirit empowers this, but, but you're energized to do what Chalmers calls um, the expulsive power of a new affection. You just live in that. Now, let's try to put some meat on the bones here. What, what does that look like? Well, well in, in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he, he says this in chapter 4. And I'm going to read kind of a long passage of Scripture, and let me just say this is a survivable thing. Okay, this is Ephesians 4, beginning with verse 23. Let the Spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. Put on your new nature, created to be like God, truly righteous and holy, Stop telling lies. Let us tell our neighbors the truth, for we are all parts of the same body. And don't sin by letting anger control you. Don't let the sun go down while you are still angry, for anger gives a foothold to the devil. If you are a thief, quit stealing. Instead, use your hands for good, hard work, and then give generously to others in need. Don't use foul or abusive language. Let everything you say be good and helpful so that your words will be an encouragement to those who hear them. Do not bring sorrow to God's Holy Spirit by the way you live. Remember, he has identified you as his own, guaranteeing that you will be saved, note that, on the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, and slander, as well as all types of evil behavior. Instead, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God, through Christ, has forgiven you. This is, this is the furniture that exists in uh, the house that is truly occupied by Christ. But did you notice in that passage... Um, the, the volition that the believer is called to. In other words, you don't get zapped with this stuff. The seeds of it are planted and energized by the Holy Spirit within us, but, but, but we're active in this. And so if there, I don't know if there are any um, really young people in here today, but I know there are some out in our, our East Campus, the, the hallway. Um, but but you, you know, you've got this little sermon outline and you've got a house that's filled with Christ and you you could you could draw or write in there some of those things that Paul mentions in Ephesians 4 faith truth forgiveness honesty kindness 
and so on. Again, when Christ moves in, the seeds of those things move in with him and, and grow by work of the Spirit. And, and, and what are the, the, the graces, do you suppose, that, that fan the flames of, of, of this love toward Christ? Well, all over the Bible, we see this stuff. We, we stay in fellowship with God's people. We, we feed on his word. We worship him. We, we, we're always repenting because we're always sinning, and he's always forgiving his people. Uh, we, we remember him at communion. We, we rejoice in baptism. We, we serve in his name for his fame. We bear witness to his gospel in his strength. In other words, it's, it's this lively faith or living faith that enjoys assurance of victory over apostasy, falling away. Do you realize that God is not interested in causing his elect people to doubt whether they're saved. Do you know whom God wants to doubt their salvation? People who should be doubting their salvation because the house is unoccupied. J.C. Ryle puts it this way. He says, Let us not be houses swept and put in order, but uninhabited by the Spirit of God. Not just evil power evacuated from your life, but Christ entering in and being welcomed and made to feel at home in every part of your life. Well, we've wandered a little bit from the text, and I want, I want to just get back to that before we end. How does the state of the man emptied become worse when seven more demons move in? Jesus says the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. That is the way it will also be with this evil generation. Well, certainly the life of the, of the clean yet unconverted is a life open to far worse evil than at first. How does the young person who seemed to be so eager for Christ end up so far away from him, his church, his mission, his way of living? Well, it's simply this. The clean, yet unconverted, become progressively more and more worldly, more anti-Christ. I don't have to give examples of what this look, looks like because we, we know its look, so many of us by what we see happening in some of our families. And so this informs not only our parenting and our grandparenting, this informs our praying, does it not? Does it not? Thank you. That's what the writer of Hebrews is talking about. Remember that passage our elder Gary Munson read earlier, Hebrews 6, 1 through 8. Um, it's a difficult passage for sure, but it certainly is not talking about true Christians losing their salvation. Don't think that. God preserves his people. And his means of preserving his people is to impart grace that enables his people to actively persevere. Again, 
We've got skin in the game. And we've got a new heart from the Spirit of God that embraces this. What a warning this is to those who are well on their way to falling away. And it helps us, I suppose, to know what in the world we're supposed to do with people in our day and age who make big headlines by coming out and saying that they've deconstructed their faith. Have you heard about this? Of course you have. What is true then in light of Scripture when we hear of those who are supposedly deconstructing their faith? Well, they're not deconstructing anything. They're simply giving evidence that they never had faith, saving faith, in the first place. They didn't lose their salvation. They didn't give it up, so to speak. It's just that they never had it. They, they, they were clean, maybe real clean, yet unconverted. Those who embrace religion about Jesus without surrendering themselves to Jesus are in peril. What kind of peril? Eternal peril. I'm talking about hell. This is not the only place in Scripture where Jesus addresses those who are, who are on the road to falling away. Um, and, and there are places in Scripture where such warnings also come with a gracious off-ramp. So if you're on that road, I, I, I want to end with this. There, there is an off-ramp. And, and I don't want you to take my word for it. I want you to just hear the words of Jesus. Just, just hear the king's alternative. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your love demonstrated in such a harsh warning to those who seem to be following you when you walked this earth and yet harbored hearts alienated from you. Lord, we thank you for the love that you bring to us even in a warning against getting cleaned up and, and, and kind of religious while hearts remain unsurrendered to you. And Lord, I thank you as well for the way that you use these warnings, even among your elect, to remind us that as you preserve us, Lord, you do so by giving us grace to persevere. And so, Lord, I pray that these purposes of yours would be accomplished among us this day. I pray that you would save sinners today. Lord, would you be pleased to occupy previously unoccupied houses. And Lord, would you impart to your people a joy and an assurance that comes to us as we live out 
this new life that you've given to us to live. We ask you this ultimately for your namesake, that you might be made known um, ever more so in our community. And so we pray it, Jesus, in your name. Amen.